0: Last time we spoke about the massive naval battle of the Eastern Solomons, sometimes referred to as the Second Battle of the Solomon Sea. The battle saw both sides getting battered, but the Americans arguably won a tactical victory, as the IGN lost more warships, aircraft, men, and the transports to Guadalcanal were delayed yet again. As historian Richard B. Frank said of it, the Battle of the Eastern Solomons was unquestionably an American victory, but it had little long-term results, apart from a further reduction in the core of trained Japanese carrier aviators. The Japanese reinforcements that could not come by slow transport would soon reach Guadalcanal by other means. While the Americans took a licking, they could produce much more, but the IGN could not hope to ever match this. While things were intensifying in the Solomons, over in New Guinea, things were also going to see some action. This episode is, The Japanese Advance on the Eora Creek. Welcome back to the Pacific War Podcast, week by week, and I'm your dutiful host, Greg Watson. But before we can begin, I just want to remind you all that this podcast is only made possible through the efforts of Kings and Generals over at YouTube. Perhaps you want to learn more about World War II? Kings and Generals has an assortment of episodes on World War II and much, much more. So go give them a look over at YouTube. So please, subscribe to Kings and Generals over at YouTube and continue to help us produce this content by checking out www.patreon.com. And hey, don't forget about our sister podcast over at The Age of Conquest. The Fall and Rise of China podcast, written and narrated by me. And if after all that you are still hungry for some history, why don't you check out my personal channel, the Pacific War Channel over at YouTube, where I have content going as far back as the Opium Wars of the 1800s, all the way up to the end of the Pacific War in 1945. Give it a look, it'll mean a lot to me. Now as the naval battle for the Eastern Solomons was raging on, the Japanese were still up to their necks in mud. figuratively and quite literally, on New Guinea. The Japanese gave the Allies a thrashing on the Kokoda Track. And uh, for all of you Australians out there, yes, uh, please forgive me for saying Kokoda for so long. Kokoda Track, and now the bulk of the South Sea's detachment finally made it onto New Guinean soil. The Japanese were hard pressed to continue their momentum to drive against Port Moresby. To face the enemy, the Australians were about to perform their own version of the Battle Thermopylae. The Australians had just been smacked around at Deniki. and they were marching their way to Uzurava. The trek to Uzurava was absolute hell. Rainfall increased the mud, sucking the boots right off the men as they marched carrying 70-pound loads, effectively sinking them in the mud pools. They also had to climb what was colloquially called the Golden Stairs. These stairs consisted of several thousand pieces of logs that had been jammed into a muddy mountainside, held in place by wooden pegs. Behind each log, which were at irregular heights, were muddy steps, clamoring with rushing water, making it a nightmare of slipping feet. Overloaded and exhausted, these guys continuously crashed into another and would be reduced many times to climbing on their hands and knees as rain poured down upon them. By the way, if you were picturing lush tropical rain looking crystalline, it was nothing like that. The rain scoured around, causing these yellowish, stinking pools of water to emerge everywhere. This was not like a nice shower. So the men climbed these golden stairs, some sections rising up 1,300 feet for 2 miles, others dropped 1,600 feet, and then rising again another 2,000 feet for 2.5 miles. It took some companies of men over 12 hours to complete the 90-mile trek up and down. It makes me tired just thinking about it. By the time the men reached their destination, they were in no fit shape for a fight at all. As 27-year-old Captain Philip Rodin described it, Gradually men dropped out utterly exhausted, just couldn't go on. You'd come to a group of men and say, Come on, we must go on, but it was physically impossible to move. Many were lying down and had been sick. Some ate, others lay and were sick and others just lay. Some tried to eat, and couldn't. Alongside the fatigue came the usual ailments, dysentery, malaria, open wounds, and other miseries. The Japanese would refer to the Kokoda Track as the Path of Infinite Sorrow. To make matters worse for the Allies, General Hori had just arrived. For the Japanese, this of course was a huge morale boost. Despite their amazing progress along the track, the men at the front lines near Daniki were in no good position. The logistics of moving equipment and food to the front was extremely difficult. More than 3,500 men posted near the front lines at Izurava required three tons of food and supplies a day. Trucks and other vehicles moved about 20 miles from the coast along the slippery log roads the Japanese engineers had built. But these were often smashed by Allied aircraft. After 20 miles, they had to rely on native carriers and their Korean laborers. The guys carrying the supplies suffered tremendously from the mud and unbearable humidity. The entire trek was around 21 days long, and General Hori estimated he required 4,600 carriers along the track to keep his men fully supplied. Another problem was the carrier's needs. Men have to eat, Men also get fatigued and become ill, especially in green hell. Men would constantly tumble off cliffs to their deaths, fall sick or simply desert and run into the jungle. For the Japanese soldiers at the tip of the spear, they could not rely upon the supplies getting to them in time. They constantly had to forage for their own food. This often saw the Japanese simply attacking the defenders' positions in an attempt to steal their supplies and the Australians began to see how they could use this to their advantage. Once the Australians realized how hungry their opponents were, they began to purposely contaminate their own food and leave it for the starving Japanese. The tainted food led tons of Japanese soldiers to be put out of action because of dysentery and severe diarrhea. It was truly a shitty situation. And of course, on top of all of this was malaria, which spread like wildfire amongst the troops. General Horry took personal command of the force on August 25th, and he commenced the advance on Isarava during the night. Isarava was located in a flat clearing, with a few creeks running parallel to it. Horry's plan was to make a faint frontal attack to draw the Australians' attention while other units circled around to attack their flanks and encircle them so they could not escape. What General Horry was not aware of was that the Australians had also been reinforced recently. Brigadier Potts had taken over command of the Moroba Force on August the 23rd, and at this point the Moroba Force consisted of the remnants of the Papuan Battalion and of the 39th Battalion, as well as a recently arrived 53rd Battalion, with further reinforcements from Potts' 21st Brigade. During the first few days of Potts' command, it took no time for him to realize the abysmal situation he was facing in regards to supply. Just like the Japanese, the Australians used native carriers to move supplies along the tedious trek. But now, with the new reinforcements, Potts required more supplies, a total of 200,000 pounds worth of rations and ammunition. To meet this task, they needed 2,000 native carriers, and it was easier said than done to get them. Potts, amongst many others, believed aircraft would be the only way to save the situation, because the carriers simply could not meet the demand. To respond to the situation, General MacArthur decided on August 24th to reinforce New Guinea with 6 Dauntless, 1 Flying Fortress and 2 Transport Planes, but this of course would not be nearly enough. To make matters even worse, the damn weather was so bad it kept preventing planes from making trips, thus the air supply operation was very unreliable. The aerial supply process suffered from deficiencies and, well, inexperience. When the aircraft did manage to make drops, they were not too impressive. There was a huge amount of inattention by staff to pack things properly, very few parachutes for the boxes, so a lot of them were tossed out freefall style, and many did not end up getting into areas that could be salvaged. Regardless of the terrible airdrop situation, the Allies and the Japanese were at this point fairly evenly matched. When the Battle of Izurava would commence, the Japanese had a total strength of around 2,130 men, while the defenders would have 2,292. The Australians were determined to resist the Japanese at Izurava, but there was little they could do against some of the big heavy guns that Hori brought with them. By August the 30th, 8 heavy guns were launching shells at the Allied defensive lines, including several 75mm mountain guns. The bombardments of August the 26th were met with an assault led by Tsukamoto along the higher ridge lines just in front of Izurapa, while the 2nd Battalion of Major Hori advanced towards the villages of Abadi, Keli, and Misima. Hori's men easily took the villages, overrunning positions defended by some 20-30 men units who were forced to flee for their lives. The London Gazette reported that in 1943, one private Kingsbury... The survivor from one of the platoons that had been overrun had quote, He immediately volunteered to join a different platoon which had been ordered to counterattack. He rushed forward, firing the Bren gun from his hip through terrific machine gun fire, and succeeded in clearing a path through the enemy. Continuing to sweep enemy positions with his fire, and inflicting an extremely high number of casualties upon them, Private Kingsbury was then seen to fall to the ground, shot dead by a bullet from a sniper hiding in the wood. While Hon-E was having an easy time of things, Tsukamoto was not. While Tsukamoto's men rushed through the jungle cover, the defenders withheld their fire until the Japanese were at point-blank range and opened up carnage upon them. To make matters worse, the men led by Tsukamoto had been in combat continuously since the initial Japanese landings in July. They were unfit to be performing such vanguard maneuvers. Nonetheless, the Japanese managed to penetrate the Australians' frontal defensive lines during the night, while other units made their way around Izurava. The next day, Hori's men had made it to Abari waterfalls, which gave them a vantage point to bombard Aloa just across the Aurori Creek. This was a terrible situation as most of the units who were overrun had gone to Aloa, prompting the defenders to toss two companies at abadi it is not quite known why but it seems hori's men at abadi were exhausted because they failed to take advantage of the critical moment the defenders were able to establish a better defensive position and received reinforcements in the form of the 16th battalion led by lieutenant colonel albert Caro. More reinforcements would emerge for the defenders and a bit of a lull in the combat. During the lull, General Hori had ordered the 3rd Battalion led by Lieutenant Colonel Kuwada Genichiro to hit the flanks of the defenders along the creek, while another assault was being made on the defenders' right flank at Izurava. It was some brutal fighting that fell into hand-to-hand combat. Then the 39th courageously made a counterattack repelling the Japanese towards the creek. On August the 28th, under heavy artillery and rain, Lieutenant Colonel Albert's men managed to dislodge Hori's men from the waterfall as the Japanese prodded the defensive lines, until a major breakthrough was made, forcing the tenacious defenders to pull back, but then return to dislodge and retake the lines again. Gradually, the flanking attacks became too much, and by August the 29th, Hori's men were commencing a frontal all-out assault on Izurava. The Japanese seized the ridges that the defenders had been taking up positions upon and established motors and machine gun nests. The Australians were unable to respond to the increased rate of fire and were gradually pushed back until the Japanese again breached their front line. The Australians again made counterattacks, retaking the lines, but as the battle raged more and more, their perimeter was shrinking. Brigadier Potts was planning to send Lieutenant Colonel Albert and his men to perform another counterattack upon Izuraba, but the situation finally looked unattainable. Thus he gave the order for the men to make a fighting withdrawal. By dusk, under heavy fire, the defenders withdrew to a rest area between Izarava and Alola. The tenacity of the defenders led to the failure of Hori's encirclement plan. The Australians lost around 100 men with another 100 or so wounded, while the Japanese had around 140 killed and 230 wounded. The lack of progression infuriated Hori, who began deploying the 41st Regiment led by Major Kowai Mitsuo to envelop the Australians in Alola. The Japanese also began a major bombardment of the rest area, where many Australians had fled to, leading Potts to order the men to head south of Alola towards Iora Village. The Japanese however were close on their heels, causing a lot of chaos for the fleeing defenders. Tons of men got lost in the jungles, leading to captures and executions. By nightfall of August the 30th, the Japanese seized Olola, finding a ton of food and ammunition, much to the relief of Hori, who was fully aware of his supply line issue. The following morning, the defenders were scattered, fleeing south, with the 14th a mile south of Alola, the 16th halfway between Alola and Iora, and the 36th and the 53rd battalions further south towards a place called Maiola. Because of the Japanese being so close on their heels, many of these units, such as the 36th and the 53rd Battalions, would be too far south to help with the upcoming battle. On the other side, Hori received an order from General Hayakatake to advance on the southern slopes of the Owen Stanley Range, and to hold that position until the second echelon of forces arrived. Hori's men were facing terrible supply difficulties, a ton of casualties, but they had to stubbornly press onwards to chase down the enemy. Hori ordered the Yazawa detachment to chase the enemy towards a place called Yora Creek, with the Kowai units as their vanguard. Potts knew the Japanese were coming at any moment, and he had prepared his fighting withdrawal with leapfrogging ambushes along the tracks as his forces dug into new positions. Potts, like Hori, had many wounded who needed tending, and thus he had to buy time to move them further south out of harm's way as the Allies knew full well what happened to prisoners of war under the Japanese. By September the 1st, the 16th and 14th battalions reached Aurora Village and established defensive positions to its south on a piece of high ground overlooking Templeton's Crossing. If you remember from previous episodes, it was named after Captain Sam Templeton who was captured and executed by the Japanese. The Japanese chasing the defenders had a literal nightmare to deal with. The rain had increased, making the tracks muddier and slippier. Every mile the Japanese marched, they were met with ambushes leading to casualties upon more casualties, increasing their misery. The 16th and 14th battalions began to cycle, setting up large ambushes and allowing the other battalion to flee with the supplies further south. On September the 2nd, the 16th pulled out completely of the Aroya village, allowing the Japanese to storm it. There, the Japanese found abandoned huts and tainted food. Hori was experiencing further supply line issues and had to put the men on reduced rations. Hunger and desperation was taking its toll on the Japanese, leading to less discipline. With the breakdown of said discipline came some budding heads between Major Kowai of the Kowai unit and Colonel Yazawa of the Yazawa detachment. The two men disagreed on the best approach for assaulting the area of Templeton's Crossing, known as the Gap. Their arguing bought the defenders more time and soon they had made it all the way to Miola. Now the vanguard led by Koai were the first Japanese units to cross the saddle of the Owen Stanley range. For the Japanese, from that point onwards it was literally downhill to Port Moresby. Meaning things should have gotten far easier as far as marching is concerned. However, Mayola was also a main supply hub for the defenders, meaning they would be a much firmer standing compared to the Japanese whose supply lines were far past their limits. The 14th established their defensive position in Maiola, while the 16th continued to hinder the Japanese advance. Maiola was a wide and flat alpine plain full of reeds with sparse amounts of trees scattered about. The area was easy to encircle, and that was just what the Kowai and Yazawa units had in mind. They planned to flank the defenders on both sides, gradually encircling them to make sure they could not escape. Potts realized the situation from the offset, and although it was humiliating after withdrawing for so long, he ordered the men to abandon Mayola to head further south for Ifogi. When the exhausted and starving men of the Kowai and Yazawa units made it to Mayola, the men rapidly grabbed any of the rations left behind by the Australians. As you can imagine, they soon found out all of the food was contaminated. A very large disappointment to many, many hungry mouths. While Green Hell was living up to its name, the boys over on Starvation Island were also having a rough time. After the Battle of the Eastern Solomons, Two options laid bare to the Japanese as to how to get rid of the American air power on Guadalcanal. One was to simply undergo an aerial war battle of attrition. The other was to seize Henderson Field. For the past two weeks, the Japanese had been going with option number one, while vigorously planning for option number two. The Americans retaliated by trying to establish a regular supply shuttle covered by their carriers. On August 26th, the 11th Air Fleet sent 17 Bettys with 9 Zeros to hammer the field. But the Coast Watchers were able to spot them. They reported it in, leading a dozen or so Wildcats to be up in the air ready to meet them. The Marine pilots claimed they took down 8 Bettys and 5 Zeros at the cost of a single Wildcat, while the Japanese claimed they took down 9 Wildcats at the loss of just 2 bombers. So pretty much the regular old claims being made on both sides. The next day, terrible weather turned Japanese pilots away from the action, leading to a land action instead. General Vandegrift had moved over the 2nd battalion of the 5th marines from Tulagi to Guadalcanal by August 21st. He was then able to field 6 infantry battalions, but still had too few rifles to guarantee a secure defense of the long perimeter. The marines regarded their passive stance around the Lunga Point as poor tactics and corrosive to morale. It just so happens, Vandegrift had it in mind to take a second jab beyond the Matanikau, but he had to postpone it because of the Battle of the Eastern Solomons. Yet, with that naval battle won and done, he now felt it was the right time to toss the 1st Battalion of the 5th Marines, led by Colonel William Maxwell, into the fray. Maxwell was given orders containing a bit of ambiguity. He was told to attack the land west of Cucumbona, sweep down the coast and return to the perimeter by nightfall. He was also told they would use artillery to bombard the mouth of the Matanikau to create a diversion, while a rifleman company would slip across the stream to block the Japanese retreat into the jungle. However, no one knew exactly where the Japanese fortified positions were. Maxwell had 933 men under his command, but he had a few problems. 24 of the 33 officers under him had joined since around April the 1st thanks to a wholesale transfer to fill out the 7th marines thus a ton of new recruits made up the majority of his enlisted men with all the chaos and movement since may these units were denied proper time for training Maxwell himself was a hard-working energetic 22 year old veteran of the marine corps as a result of the cards dealt to him Maxwell was very rigid in adherence to orders, and zealously made sure to form a policy of obedience in his men, but this came at a price to initiative. At 7am on August 27th, the battalion got ashore in their boats west of Kokumbona, finding no signs of the Japanese. Maxwell ordered his C company to take some high ground and scout the area, before sending his B company to lead the troops further inland. The battalion progressed slowly until it reached a coastal flatland. There they ran into the Japanese. Lt. Thomas Grady's platoon of Company B got into a skirmish over a high ground where his units held an enormous vantage point to break the Japanese lines. However, Grady had no radio and had to rely on sending three runners back to tell the battalion about their position. Each of the runners were overcome by heat but eventually a message came back to Grady telling him to stand fast. Grady considered launching an attack because of the great position he held, but was deterred because of Lt. Col. Maxwell's emphasis on obedience to orders. In the end, Maxwell had to give up the position and return to the perimeter by nightfall. In the meantime, Maxwell had radioed in asking for boats to return the battalion at 230 The division HQ held an incensed Vandegrift who stormed over to the 5th Marine HQ and ordered the division commander, Colonel Leroy Hunt, to take action. Hunt relieved Maxwell of command by radio and headed over to the battalion by boat. However, with the day waned far too long to renew the skirmish, the battalion passed the night holding the high ground. During the darkness, the Japanese slipped out of the area carrying 40 of their wounded and by dawn, the 1st Battalion swept over the scene of the skirmish, counting around 20 dead Japanese. The 5th Marines had three deaths and nine wounded for their efforts. A lot of blame was placed on Maxwell, but in retrospect, he faced a more difficult tactical situation than his superiors recognized at the time. In truth, though, Vandergrift had suspected Maxwell to lack leadership because of the slow advancement of his battalion since August 7th and the situation had merely validated his preconceived opinions of the man. While Maxwell's men fought, the IGN began a series of actions to bolster their air power at Rabaul. By August 29th, the IGN could count on 41 zeros, 37 Bettys, six VALs, one reconnaissance plane, and three flying boats. Of all of these, 28 were operational, barely half. The Japanese believed the Americans on Guadalcanal had around 30 aircraft at that point. Thus, they knew they needed to up their numbers and began to allocate aircraft from other areas to Rabaul. By September the 20th, Rabaul would be packing 93 long-range Zeros, 38 short-range Zeros, 81 Bettys, 6 Vals, 4 reconnaissance planes, and 14 flying boats. A formidable armada. On top of this, they formed plans to construct a new airfield at Buen, on the southeastern tip of Bougainville. To match the buildup of aircraft was the arrival of Major General Kiyotaki Kawaguchi and the 35th Infantry Brigade. Kawaguchi originally was slated to hit Fiji in July during the post-Midway mop-up operations and then hit New Guinea. But after the Americans set their toes on Guadalcanal earlier than expected, he was shifted over. The 17th Army staff presented Kawaguchi upon his landing at Rabaul on August 28th with orders to go directly to Guadalcanal on transports. Kawaguchi questioned the vulnerability of transports because of the American carriers in the region. He then counter-proposed to take his brigade to Shortland and then leapfrog to Guadalcanal by barge. The idea did not win anyone over. Instead, Mikawa and Hyukotake said they would transport him using the Tokyo Express, to which Kawaguchi refused to move a single man of his brigade without further orders from his army superiors. Some good old army-navy bickering at work. For those who don't know, the Tokyo Express was the IGN's tactic of moving troops and supplies to places like the Solomon Islands or New Guinea using faster warships. Specifically, destroyers, instead of transports. This was because of the enormous air power over Guadalcanal, and the American carriers for that matter, which would simply crush any slow-moving transports trying to sneak in. The Japanese referred to this tactic as Nizumi yuso, rat transportation, and it would turn out to be a terrible strategic error. The IGN would lose many destroyers for the 15 months they ran the Tokyo Express, with little to no gain. It goes without saying, the lack of success was what made Kawaguchi so adamant not to go through with it. On August the 30th, new orders came in authorizing the movement of some of Kawaguchi's brigade by barge. The IGN thought this was incredibly stupid and would result in half of the troops never making it to Guadalcanal. So they shipped the 2nd Battalion 4th Infantry Regiment via the Tokyo Express as Kawaguchi prepared his fantastic barge idea. Seriously, it, it's very stupid. This led to the 124th Infantry under Colonel Akinozuki Oka to organize a barge convoy for 1,000 men. Well, the Tokyo Express was attacked by 11 Dauntless from Henderson Field resulting in the destruction of the destroyer Asagiri, killing the captain Arita, and many others. 80 officers and 120 crewmen survived, alongside 83 and 150 army passengers. Destroyers Yugiri and Shirakumo both took hits as well, killing three officers and killing 31 crew. Another 62 army passengers also died. Things were not looking good for the Japanese in the South Pacific. I would like to take this time to remind all of you that this podcast is only made possible through the efforts of Kings and Generals over at YouTube please go subscribe to Kings and Generals over at YouTube and continue to help us produce this content by checking out www.patreon.com slash kingsandgenerals. And hey, don't forget about our sister podcast over at the Age of Conquest, the Fall and Rise of China podcast, written and narrated by me. And if after all of that, you are still hungry for some more history, why don't you check out my personal channel, the Pacific War Channel over at YouTube where I have content going as far back as the Opium Wars of the 1800s all the way up to the end of the Pacific War in 1945. Give it a look, it'll mean a lot to me. The courageous boys down under fought their hearts out along the Kokoda Track. Not Kokoda. We hear you Australians. But now they were fighting on the Owen Stanley Range dangerously close to Port Moresby. The Marines on Guadalcanal had a minor skirmish around Kokumbona, But the action is really going to happen next week.